The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Hi. Welcome back, fellow Spiners, to the Spies Like Us podcast. That is, of course, the podcast where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens large and small. With me, as always, is my good buddy, Steve Jobs. <laughs> Hi, nerds. <laughs> hey, Fred. This is really Fred Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, so we're doing, we're doing an oldie but a goldie. Um, the uh, movie Dishonored with Melina Dietrich. It uh, was made in 1931, and um, Todd makes the point that it's a pre-Hayes ruling, oh, yeah, which yeah. is kind of interesting, mm. and uh, we're going to talk about that. And uh, Marlena Dietrich, uh, my only, uh, what I think of her, I think of uh, the character that Madeline Kahn spoofed in Blazing Saddles, the Bavarian bombshell, but that's a whole other thing. She, this is a very serious work, and it's good. I didn't know that was who she uh, based the character off of, but that's uh, that's great. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, you said oldie but a goldie. Had did you know about this movie before? I no, I did that? not. Oh. My wife did. My wife did and had seen it, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, awesome! All right. So yeah, this is going to be the by far the oldest film that we've covered on this podcast, and it's a very notable exception to the general rule that the spy movie genre starts with James Bond in 1962. Uh, this is fully more than 30 years previous to that. It's a legit spy movie. And uh, we've got a female spy. How very, very progressive. Um, I don't even know if you can call it progressive when it's when it's from that far yeah. back. Uh, this is a work of fiction that focuses on events during World War One. Uh, which uh, it seems funny to me, you know, I'm actually getting to the age where I feel like, you know, maybe I should tell people what World War One was just in case, uh, you know, we've got some young listeners out there. Um, important to note, it was not super long war. It ran from 1914 to 1918. The title card places the events of the movie in 1915 specifically featured agencies we have austrian intelligence versus russian intelligence um austrians uh have not made an appearance in this podcast before russians have of course but this is this is way before the kgb um the uh the intelligence agencies are not explicitly named in the film which is very typical uh for older films in fact the you know for a long time it was kind of verboten in, in Hollywood to, you know, it's like, I don't know, uh, just didn't seem like a good idea to like name intelligence agencies. Uh, but we know who you, who we're talking about. Um, or at least, uh, we think we do in this case, I'm going to look at some things and figure out like, uh, what, what the actual historical agencies that we're talking about would have been. Um, now Austrian versus Russian intelligence during world war one, very plausible, uh, it's true that those intelligence agencies were very active against one each other, against one another during the war. Um, so let's see what we can suss out about them. So World War One, in a nutshell, is Germany allied with Austria-Hungary 
versus pretty much everyone else. Um, they're fighting Western Europe on the west side and Tsarist Russia on the east. Um, well, there, there were two major alliances going into it, and that was one of the tricky causes of the war. There was militarism, there was imperialism, and these supposed entangling alliances. Supposedly, if one person was attacked or one country was attacked, everybody else had to follow. So you had um, the Triple Entente. You had the Triple Entente, which was between France, Russia, and Great Britain, as a counterweight to the Triple Alliance, which is Germany, Austria, Hungary, and uh, Germany and Austria, Hungary. Yeah, and uh, you know the idea was if one of them was attacked, the others would follow. The spark was when the uh, Serb. Um, uh, when the uh, the Bosnian Serb assassinated the Archduke uh, of Austria-Hungary, then Austria attacked Serbia, and the dominoes fell. And so Russia attacks Austria-Hungary, then Germany attacks Russia, and France attacks Germany, and then they go to war. Right. That's the, oh. that's the conventional wisdom. Um, reading a bit more of it, um, they could have held back if they wanted to. It seemed like all the parties wanted this war. For everything I've read. Right. And uh, I have a particular interest in it because my grandfather was in the war. He survived. He was, in, uh, was gassed, came home, wow. but always had a cough his whole life because oh, he wow. was gassed in the trench warfare. He was a runner, you know, where they delivered messages that way, ran through the trenches. So he lived through his 90s, but he was always had this lingering cough because he was gassed from that chlorine gas that the Germans were using. You know, I've just been learning a lot about the history of, of cigarettes uh, and the marketing of cigarettes. World War One is a very, very important turning point in the popularity of cigarettes. Uh, soldiers mm. absolutely uh, loved them. And uh, the reason it's it's very difficult to uh, to smoke a pipe in a trench, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, trying yeah. to trying to keep your tobacco dry and and load it up and, and you just don't have that much time and also like you can't really linger over a cigar uh in a in a trench but cigarettes uh were just massively popular with the soldiers like you just light it up uh you know toss Smoke it away if you got them right when they start shooting yep. at you um do you know why it's uh considered have you ever heard that it's unlucky to light uh more than two cigarettes off a single match why is that it's because of World War One. You see, the first the first light, the sniper on the other side, you you got their attention. And the second one, they get the range. And the third one, ah. off goes your head. And uh, that's okay. why that's why you're never makes... supposed to light. Yeah, uh, three cigarettes off a single match. Um, so yeah, to our intelligence agencies. Uh, the Austrian intelligence agency of the time was called the Evidence Bureau. Uh, couldn't find a pronunciation guide for that, but it seems pretty uh, straightforward. Um, it was founded in 1850 and is described by Wikipedia as the first permanent military intelligence agency ever founded. Uh, I want to I raise my eyebrows a little on that. Like, what exactly do you mean by permanent? You know, because... 
uh, almost all intelligence agents. I mean, eventually the government goes away. So I'm not sure exactly what they meant by permanent, but I guess that uh, well, OSS turned into CIA. Oh, maybe mm-hmm. like OSS turned into CIA. So yes, yes, years you know. later, years later. But this is 1850. So maybe by that they mean it was the all first right. intelligence agency that was founded with the intention of being permanent. Uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to just like putting together a, a witch hunt for a specific purpose. Okay. Uh, they were disbanded at the end of World War I. So uh, they, they didn't, didn't last long after the events of this movie. Uh, so really important to mention that the Bolshev- Bolshevik Revolution that goes on to precipitate the Soviet Union happens in 1917. That's two years after this film. So... We're not looking, we're not looking, definitely not looking at KGB, uh, which we now call the GRU. They have their roots in the beginning of the Soviet Union. Um, so who's the intelligence uh, agency of the czars? Um, the answer might be something called the Okrana, uh, which I'll spell real quick. O-K-H-R-A-N-A. Uh, another one I couldn't find a good pronunciation guide for. Um, but seems to have solidified in 1880. What we need to keep in mind here when we think of Russian intelligence is that these guys were working for the Tsar, not the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks were... Right. right. Uh, in fact, these so these were anti-communist uh, Russian intelligence operatives. In fact, a lot of their work would have been trying to root out and suppress the, the Bolsheviks. Um, you had a note... Yeah, because this war was... Uh-huh. Yeah, this war was looked, both Lenin and Marx uh, recognized imperialism as one of the highest stages of capitalism, right? And since the war, since that was one of the major causes of World War One, along with militarism, entangling alliances, and nationalism, that would be one of the major reasons for the communists to want to pull out, because they didn't want any part of an imperialist war, which this was. Mm. All right. Now the Bolsheviks and all this politics doesn't actually show up in the film. We just uh, we just like to do our homework on you know these, uh, especially these intelligence agencies Background. that we yeah almost almost never get to see. Um, the screenplay is apparently loosely based on the exploits of Mata Hari, one of the most famous spies of all time, um, uh, also a lady. Uh, the big difference here is that Matahari was a spy for the Germans against the French, while our protagonist, Marie, played by Marlene Dietrich, uh, is uh, spying against the Russians for the Austrians. Uh, same time period, same war, same sides, kind of the same story, just diff- on, on different fronts. Um. I was pretty surprised when, oh, oh, I wanted to pull up to, shoot, I wanted to tell people where to find this movie. Um, Here, I'll put that, I'll put that up on screen for the video version. Uh, But because this is a movie, it's, you're going to, this is going to be one of the harder ones to find, but you would think it's not on any streaming services that I could find. However, there is uh Let's see. There's an archive. There's a really cool internet archive. You can go to archive.org slash details slash dishonored uh, uh, or just Google where to watch dishonored online. But uh, internet archives 
has got it and you can play it right there uh on on your computer for free although they do take donations uh if if you feel that uh that's warranted uh firing it up i was pretty surprised to see the modern universal pictures title card uh put in front of paramount's 1931 title card uh i guess i wasn't aware that universal had swallowed paramount um I don't feel like usually when I see a Paramount film, it, I don't feel like it usually starts with a universal card, but okay. Um, couldn't really get much information on that uh, online, but obviously at the time this movie was made, uh, this is one of the five big studios. This is the famous studio system uh, that uh, the big five being Paramount's RKO MGM, which will give us Bond later, 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. Fred, what do you know about the Hayes Code? Uh, this, just that it was uh, their, the studio's uh, self-censorship agreement. Uh, they had gone into it, uh, basically saying that we would not go into certain subject matters. Um, and uh, I think you know a little bit more about it. That's interesting. I thought it was actually government-enforced. I now, now I'm questioning that. But uh, when we think about old-timey censorship in film, we mostly think about the, the fact that everything previous to the 70s was heavily censored. And that is kind of true. Um, the 70s is like uh, this, this time where we get like what we think of now, what gives us the idea of the, the, the auteur director, and that's mm-hmm. starting with uh, uh, filmmakers like Scorsese, Coppola, Brian, Cindy Lamet. Never. Cindy Lamet. What's what's what? What are her films? His. He His? did uh, oh, Serpico. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. He did Prince of the City, Serpico. Um, yeah. A lot of different gritty New York. Um, he did um, Dog Day Afternoon. And this is all with right. And all this stuff, and and again, like what gives us our modern idea of the auteur film director, this explosion in the 70s is because of the collapse of the Hayes Code, because the Hayes Code is is like ended. There were several Supreme Court decisions that uh, like tossed it down. And that's uh, where we get, again, all those uh, directors. It also opens the doors to the exploitation era. Uh, and it's where we start to see things like drug addiction, sex, prostitution, extreme violence. All these suddenly become acceptable themes to explore in American cinema. You usually think like, oh, yeah. And then like before you think like, okay, well, the 60s and the 50s, everything was much tamer. Well, there was a time even but before the Hayes Code is where we're at now here in 1931. So uh, it's weird to find out like, there's a time way back then when they did have drug addicts and prostitutes and extreme violence and yep. all sorts of, all sorts of stuff that, you know, eventually people were like, nah, we can't have this. We're corrupting America. Yeah. But, yeah. but here's what impressed me, Todd. So this movie is pre Hayes code, right? But, and we, in the opening scene, our main character, we know that she's a working girl, right? But it's tastefully done. Right. It's right. we know she's a working girl, but it's very so it, 
to me, I'm impressed as hell how tastefully done it is. It's not exploitive, but we do know that she's a working girl. Yeah, it's really just kind of kind of hint hint to that. They don't they don't yeah. uh, they don't go without back. without the hate code, right? Right. So that's the part that I think is kind of neat. Yeah, but also, but you know, even like like you say, taste tastefully done. Um, yep. Uh, we're not we're not talking rated R here at all, uh, but. Uh, it is. It's a little mind blowing to think that uh, there was a time way back that far where you could have a prostitute be your main character in a movie, like uh, mm-hmm. you know. Because I think usually people think of uh, you know the loosening of the unclenching with the sixties, <laughs> right? The unclenching of the asshole. <laughs> As, as being just a process and just the farther go, back you go, you figure like, no, no the more uh, pure, puritanical people were and keep going back. But then, of course, you go way back to Greece and their plays, you know, they're running around with like giant penises on, on stage, like like left and right and, and lots of like extremely foul and crass humor. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um Marlene Dietrich, our our star. This is the first time I've actually seen her in a movie. I do. I've always like enjoyed uh, seeing her pictures. I think uh, I think she's really hot. <laughs> I would yeah. say I would say she's in the running for top most captivating screen presences of all time. She might even be if I had to like make rank my sexiest women of all time. She she might be in the running for my personal number one. Uh, I do... And see, that's another thing. Yeah. That, there's another thing, Todd. She oh. could exude that sexiness, right, for you to even say that pre-haze, right? Mm-hmm. So that's another kind of neat thing, that she could do that without uh, being exploitive, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. I, I do find sex cigarettes to be quite sexy and uh man she uh can really really smoke a cigarette on a screen um so i get to learn some more about her for this uh for this podcast uh she is a huge star of the era uh almost certainly considered the sexiest german woman alive at the time uh and so it's no surprise that nazi agents were keen to try to recruit her you know, once her career was taking off in Hollywood and, you know, so obviously this is later, you know, after the events of this movie, but uh, when World War II was kind of winding up, the Nazis did really want to try to like recruit her back to Germany, but uh, she was strongly anti-Nazi and very public about it. Uh, applied for U.S. citizenship in 1937. So again, that's like, as that's, I don't know, I think World War II hasn't quite spilled out yet, but um and she created a fund to help Jews and dissidents escape Germany. Uh, she had a movie where she uh, had a half a million dollar salary, and she put her entire salary into that fund. So, uh, uh, putting her money where her mouth was, I guess. Yep. Uh, during World War II, she was one of the first celebrities to lend their star status to the war effort. You know, the whole classic USO thing? 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, most famous example uh, would be like Bob Hope. Uh, but she was yep. one, she was one of the first to like get involved in that kind of work. Um, she went back and forth on, on both theaters in the Pacific and the European. And uh, she was known for uh, being willing to work much closer to the enemy lines uh, than most other celebrities of her time. Um, I liked this anecdote. This is a cute trick she said she would use in her USO shows, uh, something that she said her friend Orson Welles suggested. She would tell the audience she could read their minds and ask them to concentrate on whatever came into their minds. And then she would walk over to a soldier and she would laugh and say, oh, think of something else. I can't possibly talk about that. Which was always like a huge, huge laugh. And, uh, right. And, and accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, this is her third sound film. So she's also one of, you know, like actually a lot, uh, apparently from my understanding, most silent movie stars did not make a successful transition into the sound era. Uh, she's, she's one that very much did. Uh, she did 20 silent films. Uh, this is her third sound film. Both of the first two having been massive hits and Paramount was eager to capitalize, keeping her along with the director of the first two, Joseph von Sternberg. So she, this is, you know, she's working with the same guy uh, repeatedly. Obviously he knows how to film her. Uh, they're, they're working very well together. Gary Cooper was her co-star in the previous film, Morocco. And the studio had wanted Gary Cooper for this one, but apparently Cooper hadn't enjoyed working with Von Sternberg. So they end up uh, using a guy named Victor McLaglen. This is the only time I've ever seen him. This is the only time I've ever heard of him. Uh, I'd be perfectly fine if this is the last. I thought he was really bad in this movie. Did you... Did you did you have the same reaction? I think they're yeah, very but it, badly mismatched. <laughs> but that's probably the fault of the old studio system where so many times people were miscast in roles, but the studio stuck them there, right? Even though you said they wanted Cooper before, because he declined, they probably stuck him in there because they they were contracted. And that's right. why you had, like, Bogart. You know, he was a contract. He was miscast as the Oklahoma kid in a Western, right? You had crazy miscasting, and uh, that could have been part of it, you know, why right. this guy was. It could have been a situation where maybe McLaughlin was, like, someone they were hoping to boost and, yeah. you know, hoping that Dietrich's star power would, like, rub off on him. Um, yeah, who knows? Sure. Right. Uh, I think they have very, like, almost zero chemistry uh, on screen together, and, and mostly that's him and uh that's something that uh i think we're gonna have to talk about later when we get into the tradecraft because uh you know their romance is you know kind of key to the to the story yeah and the, the whole believability that she would go to such lengths mm -hmm. for someone like him that you say you don't see the sparks no sparks no fire man mm -hmm. um but it's also, uh, you know, we got to say, too, that, um, you know, any of the very few, there's only a very, very small handful of pre-Bond spy films. Um, nearly all of them are romances, you know, like that's and this, you know, it's kind of 
kind of cast as a romance. Although I think it's more of a spy story than a romance, uh, which which made me happy. I was pleasantly surprised of how much a spy movie this actually was. Um, even though, you know, you kind of got to be grading on a curve there. There are no park benches in this film. Um, and I'm ready to start talking about the tradecraft and the plot. Let's go. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Well, the opening scene, the head of the Austria-Hungarian secret police notices, she notices her as a prostitute and has her in mind to infiltrate and uncover someone who thinks is a spy to by using her female prowess to uh, uncover this person. And um, he goes to her house. She thinks it's for her first job, uh, but it's not. And uh, he approaches her as kind of a spy, and she does the right thing and turns him in, which impresses him, and uh, so he recruits her. Right. She passes a, a loyalty test that he poses to her by, you know, basically he's kind of offering her money to spy against the Austrians. So, so yeah, uh, what caught his attention in the first place was a comment she made on the street. Apparently one of her uh, fellow streetwalkers has perished and uh, her, uh, someone says she's destined to suffer the same fate. She says, no, I'm not afraid of life. I'm not afraid of death either. And that's the, the, the thing that gets his attention, makes him think, I mean, that's what the movie wants us to believe is that he says like, oh, hey, she's not afraid of death. Cool. I don't mm -hmm. think that's really a lot to go on here. Um, the movie seems to be kind of like in a hurry to get to the spy stuff. Um, or it could be, kind of, I thought maybe it was a little bit of foreshadowing when she says, I've had an inglorious life, maybe my good fortune to have a glorious death. Um, it could be a bit of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Sure, sure. So, um, let's see. We don't, we, the, her recruitment is quite brief. We don't see uh, really any of her briefing on what her assignment is just that she's supposed to be or well actually no because it's the chief of staff of the austrian government that uh the austrian secret police head has under suspicion and so i guess he's having a tough time um getting to that guy because you know he's so highly connected and um we don't see her get any training at all which uh, is something that you would expect like from all the movies we've covered where, you know, someone gets recruited like off the street into the spy trade. Like we, we spend some time seeing their, their training and, and teaching them the rules of the game. We don't get any of that. Although maybe they feel, maybe they feel her female proudness of her trade is enough, you know, right. to get to these guys, you know, to use her sexuality and because that's what they have in mind to begin with, right? There will be one, at least at least one, very 
complicated and cool spy trick that she's going to use that she has to have received training in, but uh, we didn't get to see it uh, in in advance. We'll get to that uh, later. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't miss an opportunity for uh, him to say to her that the calling of a spy is the most ignoble on earth. Um, This going to the point, and this is mainly the reason that we don't see and this was so interesting to me when I first started this podcast of realizing just how few spy movies there are before James Bond is realizing that like spies are dirty. They're, 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 the audiences consider them like dirty, low life. Traitors. Yeah. Traitors. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, like the, Benedict, Benedict Arnold kind of people. Yeah. And, and the idea that you could make that person, the, the, protagonist of the story and have the audiences respond uh positively to them it's just like unheard of until james bond comes along and just fucking destroys that like with sean connery's panthery sexiness um Mm -hmm. but yeah well then you could say that this that this was sort of ahead of its time then especially if she made it work it's 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 incredibly ahead of its time. It's ridiculous. This is what this movie is an anomaly. This is a massive anomaly uh, in terms of spy films. I can't underline that enough. Um, yeah, thirty years before Bond, a woman as your spy hero, and she's a prostitute. This is like in a few it, this is in a few years before the Hayes Act, right? A few years before, the, yeah. Yeah, this movie. So throw that in too. This movie is breaking all of the rules, hundred uh, percent. Yeah. So uh, her her first target is oh, and and she gets a code name X twenty seven, which yeah. is kind of cool. So it's Colonel von Hindau. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, he's not the chief of staff, but he's attached to the chief of staff. Uh, just mm-hmm. to be sure about that. We go to next to a scene where uh, she is going to go to a masquerade party. Uh, quite a, a messy affair. I feel bad for the staff that needs to clean up all of the confetti afterwards because they, they definitely use all of it. Um, she attracts his attention at the party. Uh, before that, though, she starts flirting with another guy in a mask. Now, again, like we're just skipping right from her recruit, pretty much from her recruitment right to this scene. So we get a little bit lost. Like we don't know how she identified her target, how she got into the party. We're skipping over a lot of the steps that you would typically see in a spy movie these days. Um, But she does start flirting with one masked man. And I was really interested to notice there's a moment where his mask slips and he seems like alarmingly keen on getting the mask back onto his face, which suggests like, Hey, this guy is, uh, I mean, it's obviously like the rules of the masquerade party or I guess you're supposed to stay anonymous, but the fact that this guy is so keen on keeping his mask on, I think is meant to like point out like, Hey, pay attention to this guy. He's got a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's kind of, kind of, at the time I found it a little confusing because I don't know who she's after. Uh, the fact, I think maybe even if we had been shown a picture of the guy uh, earlier in the film, well, now they're wearing masks. So I can't tell 
who's who and who's this guy she's flirting with at first. Well, it turns out that's not her primary target. She starts flirting with an, another guy or he starts flirting with her. I don't know. What I wanted to mention, though, is like uh, it's going to go on my best tradecraft here is that instead of going to the party and immediately zeroing in on her target and flirting with that guy, she starts flirting She's with an, the room. Yes. She starts flirting with another guy and yep. lets her target come to her and kind of have to compete uh, a little bit, which would make him, it just, it's less obvious. It's more subtle and less obvious than if she just came in and, and was just like, Hey, sexy, where you been? And, and pretty savvy for uh, somebody who hasn't been trained as a spy. Right. But again, her female proudness is she's probably using that, which is why they probably hired her. You know, she knows how to work a party. Right. So, yeah. 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 Um, she, the two men do end up turning out to know each other. And, uh, the, the one guy, that first guy that she flirted with, I'm just going to go ahead and name these guys. The first guy she flirted with is Cranow and he's the other main character in the film. Turns out we don't know that yet. Um, but, uh, him and her target do seem to know each other. And uh, they enjoy a uh, carriage ride, car ride. I guess I wasn't quite clear on which it was um, uh, from the party during which Krenow passes or offers Hindau a cigarette, which then they say goodnight to Krenow and she gets invited up into Hindau's uh, hotel room or abode. I'm not sure if it's his house or I guess it is his house. here what she's got to do oh that's right here so we we uh, were given to believe that this was arranged with the chief between her and the chief that now the chief while she's uh like whining and dining or seducing let's say uh hindau uh he gets a call from the austrian secret police guy and the whole ploy is to keep him on the phone for a while give her time to search the room, um, which she starts doing. She looks in some kind of funny places, like behind pictures and stuff. It was a little goofy. Uh, I did give her a little bit of plus five points when um, uh, his butler enters the room and sees that she's snooping around. And it's a pretty good cover story. She says she's looking for a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And that's how she happens to find out from the butler that Herr Hindau is not a smoker. Uh, so that makes her think, well, then why why did Cranau give him a cigarette? And she goes and she finds a secret message in the cigarette. Uh, we don't know what the message was exactly. We don't find that out. But uh, when Hindau comes back from the phone call, uh, she basically like just waits and permits him to find out, to realize that uh, she's taken the message out of the cigarette. And he pretty much immediately says, okay, game over and shoots himself, uh, which was whack as all fuck. And easily my number one worst tradecraft in the film. 
I mean, he did ask, like, he did say, like, oh, okay, well, you know, he's putting two and two together. He's realizing, oh, the phone call was for this purpose. Uh, I've been had. He says to her, like, I suppose the building is surrounded. She confirms this. But really, Fred, get in here and tell me what's wrong with this. Yeah, he he falls too quickly, I think, Fred. Uh, I just feel if he should have been a savvier spy than that and not to have folded so quickly with this discovery, whether he tried to talk himself out of it or whatever. But yeah, he folded like a cheap suit. So that was a little quick. Yeah. Just deny that that's that, that mess. I don't know. Somebody gave me a serious, so it's got a message. In it. I don't know what the message is. I don't know who that, I don't know what you're talking about. Also, I would be like, yeah. what message? I would toss it into the fireplace or I would just swallow it or something. Yeah. Um, Buy some time. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah. He's easily number one worst tradecraft. Now, by the way, when they come in and clean up the, the area too, like she is not phased by this at all. She is one ruthless and unflappable lady, um, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting. Now, Something about the secret message leads her to a casino where she finds the guy that had given Hindal the message. Now, remember, previously that guy had been in disguise because of the masquerade ball, and also he was using a cane. Here, he's not in disguise. He's not using the cane. So uh, we can clearly see that uh, his previous performance was exactly that. It was a performance. Um, they flirt for a bit where like, uh, let's see the, 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 the wiki here was before sensing danger, he escapes. What was it? Do you remember exactly what it was that he, uh, how I don't see what gave him, gave her away. I really don't, you know, um, they say her chief says that guy's too savvy. Um, for you to, you know, flirt with him. But I don't, I don't see what gave her away at all in that scene. Yeah. I don't remember if, he's, if, if he'd seen her without a mask, but it's something about something about her while they're, while they're flirting. He does. Um, yeah. Yeah. She, uh, yeah. The boss says Carnell is too clever to be trapped by a woman. Okay. But again, what gave her away? Right. Um, now it seems I, I know I had written this I don't see it but I remember it uh, it seems like you know because she reports her, her failure to, to get Cranell to the boss and, and he says yeah well that wasn't going to work anyways and it seems like this is an operation that she planned herself that he hadn't approved but you know he he doesn't seem to know have known in advance that she was going to try to approach Cranow. He tells her, mm-hmm. you know, that, that just wasn't, wasn't going to work. So I don't know where she got the authority to have other agents on hand, but she did, uh, which was cool. And David would have been happy to see that because David was always complaining about spies that run around with no backup team here. As soon as, uh, you know, the shit goes down, uh, she's, she's got other agents that are on, on hand to assist Although uh, later in the film, she doesn't appear to have any backup team in Poland. 
Um, later the same night, night, right? Later the same night, Krenow breaks into her apartment while she is loudly playing the piano. And we've seen her play the piano numerous times in the movie. And it's apparently a very important uh, uh, part of her. Uh, I don't know. She's passionate about the piano, let's say. We get some cool scenes where she's like uh, using the, the piano to just kind of like work out her inner emotions or something like that. And, and we find out about his tradecraft in hindsight, right? When she tries to call and use the gun. Let's hear it. We find out what he did. Yeah. Well, um, before we even know, he takes the cartridges out of her gun and cuts the telephone line. So that's his tradecraft. All right. Good on him. We don't see him do it, but we find out he does it when she tries to employ those two things. He, while he was, while she was busy playing the piano and, and under cover of, of that noise and her distraction, uh, he finds her, the details of her next mission in her coat pocket. Uh, it's, it's a, a pretty, I, I don't know, four or five pages, big pages, uh, big ass note, a lot of, lot of details, a uh, little note for her, uh, for spycraft. You, you need to learn to like memorize your instructions and, and burn that shit and not just leave it lying around in your coat pocket, even in your own home. Um, and and then, then we find out later, okay. we find out at the end of the movie, how she does use her memory to, memorize something even more involved and important. So she could have done it then too, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I forget exactly what tips her off. He does, he, she does find him in her, in her apartment. She goes for the gun. It, we find out it's empty. She goes for the phone. We find out the phone line has been cut. Um, they're again kind of flirting with each other a bit. They're they're kind of uh, doing the, uh, I don't know. You're 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 who? Which which of us is the worst? <laughs> no, you're the worst. No, you're the worst. Um. You you said here, uh, the the accusations that he makes against her. Did you want to tell us about those? Yeah, I just think. I don't know if you'd call it sexist or a double standard. I just found it highly ironic. Um, he accuses her of bringing something into war that doesn't belong. In other words, sexuality. And I put it aside as if war has a morality that shouldn't be tainted by sex, love, or emotion. He says, you trick men into death with your body. As if that's some greater sin that all those nihilistic, imperialistic bandits who ruled Europe at the time and used their soldiers as cannon fodder. <laughs> you know, he goes on to say that um, after she asked him for a kiss, that you're a cheat and a liar. And that if he stayed any longer, he might not only lose his life, but fall in love with her. So I just find it um, extremely disingenuous that this guy says, you're not playing fair. Um, Whereas, you know, or as if war itself, especially that unnecessary war that exploited and killed thousands of men, right, was fair. You know, I just found that highly um, right. It just, ironic. It, it, goes, it goes to that whole, like, big old bullshit, like, 
honor honor of war you know that it's that it's that it's a great and honorable calling which of course is like the massive fiction that's been used for thousands of years to uh fool men into throwing away or risking their lives for the the profit but but women have power of women have been involved in war since helen of troy right and reasons for war Mm -hmm. yeah but at the at the end of the day i mean you know he's 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 the bad guy and the movie is going to land on her side uh of the of the of the moral well she succumbs to that that whole unfair play too right the whole unfairness of love and emotion and sex she succumbs to eventually as well yeah yeah right yeah um my other note about this scene is that like he is really forthcoming about his job um she all all she basically doesn't have any information on this guy she calls him a clown and in response he basically like describes his entire job to her (laughs) he says yeah i'm a russian officer in in the army and i fly back and forth over lines and i do this and i do that and i gotta give it the big minus five points buzzer of like dude you do not need to be telling her any of this shit (laughs) at all yeah He leaves. I don't know why. I guess, I mean, you know, he's not going to over overstay his welcome. Uh, I mean, he's got to Well, leave. unlike the other guy. He's got to leave. Well, unlike the other guy who folded too quickly, right? He just leaves. <laughs> right? You know? And then uh, following that, she's going to go on her next mission, which is uh, quite a bit more involved. She's supposed to infiltrate a Russian base in Poland. Uh, and at this, that's a huge, that's a huge leap, isn't it? From big, the whole, what you, you know, that's a huge leap to go behind enemy lines and start that. But okay. It, it's a big leap. The movie does kind of like skip a lot of steps that you, that modern spy movie audiences would expect to see. Um, but at least the stuff. Yeah. Is- there she would. Yeah. There she would have to have some training, whether it's be, you know, in parachute in or, you know, being smuggled in and, you know, the whole clandestine cloak and dagger to get there. She would have had to, right? Yeah. And had that training. And a network of contacts and, you know, code phrases, means of communicating uh, uh, outside. Um, Yeah. And and also. Her female proudness wouldn't have been enough there. Right. Well, that's what she right. mostly, yeah, that's right. What she mostly relies on. Um, I noted too, that, uh, even though, you know, it should be easy to surmise that Cranow, uh, has read her, her plans, uh, you know, her, her mission briefing, uh, but there's no concern displayed by anyone about the idea that her Poland mission might've been compromised. And so she flies over the border oh, yeah, in, a, yeah. in a little prop plane. Uh, I refuse to believe there's any cat in the world that would have been okay with this uh, <laughs> kind of trip. Definitely no cat that I've ever had. 
but she is taking her cat with her, which is going to actually be like uh, part of her downfall. Um, mm -hmm. Once in Poland, she disguises herself as a dim-witted peasant girl and uh, gains employment in the officer's quarters. Uh, she quite quickly seduces one of the senior officers. Now here they're, you know, they're, they have a war room, they're making all their plans and stuff. And then afterwards, uh, she isolates, uh, one of the guys and, you know, as, as you keep saying proudness, I'm not sure that's the exact word. Um, female proudness. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I did look it up. Plies him, you know, gets him, gets him nice and nice and drunk, drunk enough to pass out and uh, obtains the secret plans for the attack. And here we get to the coolest, the coolest plus, plus spy points of this movie, which is uh, what she does with the plans. She copies them down in musical notation so that it looks like it's sheet music. Um, while she's doing this, Cranow happens to... Oh, now, also, let's back up for a second. Cranow is telling his other officers that he knows that she's in the hotel somewhere. So why aren't they questioning everyone? You know, he's just telling everyone to be on high alert. But if you're certain, if you've read her plans, you know, her operation, then you're certain that she's then start questioning the women. Well, do they think that'll spook spooker and that she'll run? You know, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, the transcription into musical notation, I thought was really clever. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was. It suggests that she did get some training. We just didn't get to see it. Um, he sees her black cat. He sees the cat uh, slinking around the hotel. And he recognizes that is her cat. And so that really tells him that he knows that she's in the hotel. She's there. But he already had a scene where he was telling everyone he was morally certain she was in the hotel. So I think it's a little slip up in the movie, whatever. But, uh, you know, this just seeing the cat shouldn't have been as massive of a clue to him that something is up as as it is. And then he immediately goes right to Coven's room. That's the guy she seduced. There's a ton of Russian officers here. How does he know to go right to that room? doesn't make sense mm. but, but the movie does just doesn't want to linger over these things too much um he finds her there uh knows knows it's her uh or wait no no he didn't find her she ran but mm -hmm. I'll Gets outside, right? Yeah, she managed to get outside, but he calls the guards and has her has her pulled in, and then interrogates her uh, privately, just one on one. Uh, probably not great tradecraft there. Like, get get some other people in the room. Um, mm -hmm. he finds the the musical score on her person, and he immediately douses it with some kind of solution. So he's got a tray full of liquid on his desk and he tosses the document in there. Um, and she says like, ah, I don't use invisible ink. Let's talk about invisible ink a little here. Um, obviously the movie 
assumes the audience knows about Invisible Ink. And that makes a lot of sense because it was used a lot in World War One. In fact, World War One uh, is one of the times when it really like started to ramp up uh, its usage. However, it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome uh, in the first place. Uh, interestingly, uh, a lot of the developments of an invisible ink uh, came during the American Revolution. Um, uh, George Washington apparently uh, was a was a big innovator in this stuff. Have you ever heard of the egg trick? Although I think the egg trick is 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 way older than this. But do you know this one? I'm not sure. You take a hard-boiled egg, and you, there's a certain solution, maybe iodine or something. You can write a message on the on the shell of the egg, and it'll disappear. Oh yeah. And you right, yeah. and it'll just look like a normal egg. However, once you peel the egg, then you can read the message because it has okay. seeped, seeped through. Yeah, that's mm. that's that's a good one. Um. Now, during this particular period, again, during World War I, uh, both sides were constantly trying different methods of different kinds of invisible ink and different ways of trying to detect it. What I could tell, what I could find out from just a little bit of researching here is that uh, the only universal method that was known at the time of detecting any kind of invisible ink, like, so you got different kinds of ink in different ways you have to detect different types. One method won't detect all of them, except there's one method that will detect any invisible ink, and that's with iodine vapor. And that's not what he does. He's not using a vapor. Uh, he's just dousing it in some kind of solution. Now, the way that the iodine vapor technique works is that it shows any place where the texture of the paper has been affected by moisture. And that's why it's universal, like it like detects all types. So the what he does to try to see if there's invisible ink in there would have checked for one type of invisible ink, and it also would have like ruined all your other ways of finding invisible ink. Uh, we don't know what type he was expecting. Um, but of course, I mean, it, it turns out there was an invisible ink in the first place, so maybe I'm spending too much time on this, but uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, I'll put in one, no, two more notes, two more notes on invisible ink, and then we'll move on. Um, <laughs> Uh, the CIA declassified documents, like pretty much all their documents related to the history of Invisible Ink in 2011. Uh, in statements, they said that the technology of creating difficult to detect inks had not advanced for decades, while suggesting that the ways of detecting it had a lot. So in the arms race of like detection and non-detection, like detection has won the race and probably the era of being able to use invisible ink in any real practical sense uh, is over. And I think ultraviolet light is probably uh, the real game changer there. Um, and then last, just anytime, if I'm going to mention invisible ink, I have to mention the British used uh, semen as invisible ink during world war one, which is a fact that I've always thought of as hilarious um so he's got her he's got 
some sheet music, which is not got any invisible ink messages. What happens next, Fred? Let's get you back in here. She plays it, right? She deciphers it and or she smuggles it out, right? Well he play he plays it. Okay. And she writes it down. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll 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 keep it rolling on this one. Um so he's still he's she still can... he's still plenty suspicious and uh he ends up uh trying to play the music and actually I think she might have right. Yeah, she doesn't prompt him to play it. She doesn't want him to play it because it's not real music. If he plays it, he's if he if he sits down and right. hits the keys, he's going to realize this is not actual music and then that's going to cue him in that it's some kind of code but uh right. again for more uh plus spy points on this whole idea of transcribing the music and why it makes my number one for sure number one with a bullet is that she's using the time of him playing it uh that that's how she is memorizing it in her own head that's right because maybe she can't remember like all the details of like what she had written down, but musical memory works differently. And it's like a lot of the reason that like ancient people, the reason that uh, why, uh, you know, before we had the written word, you go to ancient people, the way they kept track of long, huge amounts of information, transferring it generationally was always through music and poetry because uh, when you put something in a poetic or a musical kind of kind of situation, like each line kind of reminds you of what the next line should be. It's a lot easier to collapse, to memorize large amounts of information if it's put in a yep. rhythmic fashion. So that's yes. fantastic here. Um, he does... Uh, go ahead and fall uh, for her prowess, as you put it. Uh, they end up, uh, she she gets him into bed, and uh, in the morning, she manages to drug him and make her escape back to Austria. I liked uh, the fact that of how she forged her pass to get out of the headquarters once he she had him unconscious. Again, poor spy points on him of like thinking that he's just going to like one-on-one take care of this woman. Uh, you know, they should have like more guards and more people involved and and maybe put her in a cell and not uh, keep her in your bedroom. So now we're to the part you were talking about where uh, once she's back, and that's how, you know, she now she successfully makes her escape. And... Yeah. Uh, back at headquarters, it's by playing the music that she can remember, like, okay, this is, okay, these troops are going here, these troops are going there. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, she drugs them and makes her escape back to Austria and mm -hmm. commits the coded uh, musical notation to memory um, when Cronau played it, and she's able to reconstruct it when she gets back home and help the Austrians crush the Russian offensive. 
Cranow is captured during this operation. Mm-hmm. And he's taken into custody where uh, um, we go to a scene where all the different Russian officers that, are, that were captured are being brought in. Uh, he stands out a little bit by refusing to uh, identify himself. Uh, but uh, apparently there's some kind of APB out on him because one of the uh, Austrian officers does notice like, okay, hey, we got a picture of this guy. Uh, we were supposed mm-hmm. to be looking for him. He's a guy named H14. Um, I want to mention that uh, a little bit. Like the the fact that when she went after Cranow, remember when she went out after Cranow at the casino? She did that without the chief's uh, knowledge. But when she reported yeah. to him, uh, you know, when he said, like, uh, yeah, he's way too clever to be seduced by a woman, uh, that means he knew or at least strongly suspected Krana was a spy. So why didn't they just round him up back there in Austria? Um, I guess we have to assume that since he didn't make, since the chief wasn't making any moves to try to arrest him, Maybe like he knew, but they didn't have any actionable, provable evidence. That still doesn't yeah. really hold with me because even if you have a, if you, even if you can't prove it, if you know someone's a spy, get them in the custody, take them off the street. Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, I mean, now he's actually been captured on the battlefield in a Russian military uniform. So that now you've got your evidence. I mean, you don't, you don't need uh, any more on this. Um, she intervenes and wants to talk to him personally. Um, I think there was a really mi- cool missed opportunity here I wanted to flag in the script where, remember, in the casino situation, when he got spooked by her, uh, it was. It started with the the line like, "Hey, you know, like, haven't haven't we met before?" I thought it would have been really cool if in this scene she had used that same line back on him and said like, "Hey, haven't yeah. we met before?" Yeah. Yeah, that would have been. So put me in a time machine and and get me a job script doctoring uh, at, at Paramount, and I'll I'll yeah I'll fix your shit up. Um. Now, at this point, I mean, she started out as a... She's always been a cool cucumber. I mean, that's kind of the Marlene Dietrich brand. Um, although, I mean, it was interesting to see her doing her, uh, like, play acting of, of being, like, kind of a, a dummy uh, as, yeah. as in, the, in, the, in the headquarters, as just, like, a simple-minded, like, uh, you know, kind of country bumpkin appearing. Bimbo. Kind of made, yeah, bimbo. Yeah, you said it. Um, but here, like, okay, but anyways, like, usually the Marlene Dietrich brand is like being super fucking cool. And I gotta say, like, at this point, this is like near the end of the movie. She's got her leather jacket. She's smoking her cigarette. She is so fucking cool. Uh, she's clearly got the the respect of all the military men around her, which, you know, seems a little, uh, mm, fantastic, 
you know, com- compared to like the reality of it. But that's like, I don't know, just the aura that she's got is, uh, is, is really cool. Uh, I just, I wish in retrospect, this movie had done a better job of doing, of making the whole from zero to hero kind of storyline that I think is done uh, so much better in movies like La Femme Nikita, uh, the Hollywood remake of the same being point of no return. And of course, uh, the Red Sparrow movie with Jennifer Lawrence, great examples of like how to, how to do that. Well, um, here it's just, it's, it's just kind of sudden, like she, she started the movie just kind of like, eh, and now she just seems like, I don't know, the ultimate spook. We got to get you back onto the mic. I'll give you, I'll give you time if you want to get caught up, but we got to get you back uh, talking more. Can, can we give you the <laughs> interrogation and execution scene? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it just, this goes back to how cool she is and how true she is to herself um, and how when the authorities find out that she aids and abets Cronow, they can't understand why she'd give it all up uh, when she has this chance to serve her country. Well, I say she served her country. She saved thousands of her countrymen's life by getting that uh, actionable intelligence to crush that Russian rebellion. Yes, in a weak moment, she let her lover go, but I thought that said more about her her humanity than any uh, thing you could say about her so-called treason. And at that, at the very least, she should not have been at least executed because letting him go posed no harm, no national security harm, and she already did the the major legwork. Um, so when they're scolding her, right? And uh, shaking a finger at her and say, why would you violate your duty for the casual affection of that man? She simply replies in the coolness that you find so sexy, God, (laughs) perhaps I loved him. Then you can't make me believe you love a man you only knew for a few hours. That's the kind of love you find out on the street. To which her original runner says, I found her on the street. (laughs) You had a chance to redeem yourself in the service of your country. Can you think of a single reason why you didn't take advantage of that privilege? She replies almost flippantly, I suppose I'm not much good, that's all. I would argue at this point that she did, in fact, more than redeem herself, and that all but for a weak moment at the end where she decides to spare her lover, whose escape at this point could do little harm, by the vast majority of her espionage, work that not only uncovered spies, but committed a code to memory that when reconstructed enabled the Austrians to crush the Russian offensive and undoubtedly save countless lives of her countrymen. Considering all of that, I believe at the very least her life should have been spared. On the surface, this flippant remark by her to me only reinforces her authenticity and that she realized she can't expect them to understand her love for him. So she gives them that reply. Well, I don't understand it either, <laughs> to their credit. What? Her love for Krano. Oh, well, that's a, that's a casting question. I'm sure. saying 
if you accept the story, or I mean, the story that obviously Chevelle in love with him, that's, that's a different thing, you know, that if, you know, his acting doesn't show the spark, you know, but given the fact that she is supposed to be in love with him, right? That's what I'm talking about, right? Um, do we want to get to the execution with the monk or do you want to say a little yeah. bit more about? Oh, oh well, um, let me, let me, let me address a couple of the things that you just said, like, especially okay. I wanted to key in on this, this fucking, this fucking bureaucratic piss ant, what redeem yourself, like re redeem this motherfucker. Like what has she got to redeem herself from? This is like total like sex worker shaming, which, okay. Like I believe, you know, I believe it, you know, of the mores of the time, but uh, just, I just want to say like, like fuck you, like I and given given no credit for for the lives she saved, that's right? The, given no credit for that. That's that's the other part. You know, she just handed you a massive W, like a huge W. Okay, so maybe she let this one guy go. Uh, you know, in a moment of of weakness, she doesn't deserve to lose her life for that. And and you know, no. you should be pinning a medal on her, not not yep. <laughs> not executing her. Um, Speaking of right. which, too, like, okay, so, you know, and again, okay, so, yeah, I do want to underline the fact that, like, to me, like, the big, the the single big sin of this movie, just as far as telling the story, it goes back to this, again, the casting decision, the failure of the movie to establish the romance and to give her a reason uh, or give us a reason to believe that she would take this huge risk. Um just to spare this guy's life. And even then too, like she, uh, she's folding as bad as uh, Landau or whatever the guy in the first part of the movie was too. Like, it's not, it's not implausible at all. The idea that, you know, cause they were alone in a room together. Like, Oh, he overpowered me. Like, uh, you know, he, he got away. He, he hit me in the head. He, he grabbed the gun from me. Um, I see. I don't look, I look at it a little differently. I don't look at her as folding and not being savvy enough to come up with a reason. My God, she could, right? She, I just look at it as her authenticity. Like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not that good. And I fell in love with them and just her being true to herself, which she is throughout the whole story. That's how I look at it. If she wanted to, she could have talked. She didn't want to, right? She was just, yeah, that's what happened. I don't, I don't put her in the category of that other guy who just nervously folded, right? I look at it as just her being true. Like, yeah, okay. That's what happened. Right. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes. And, and to me, that's consistent. That's consistent with her character throughout the whole movie, being true to herself. Right. And sometimes I like to talk about the, or look at some, analyses of movies by looking at the difference between plot and story. And to me, plot is up here and story is, is here. I've just remembered where it's also an audio cast. So what I mean is plot is in the head story is in the heart. And 100%, if you have to choose, like if there's a conflict between the two, it's more important to tell a good story than it is for a plot to make sense. You know what I'm you know what I'm saying? Like if you if you uh, if you have keep, keep if, going. If you have to I would rather watch a movie where I have problems with the plot 
but it's a oh. good story okay. than okay. to watch a movie where the plot is perfect, but the story just leaves me cold and, yeah. and not caring. So that's what I mean. Like right. the story has to come first. But so this is a case where I think like the plot, you know, of the way that she let him go, the way he escaped, if they wanted the story to be like you're saying, like, like she's definitely like going to be unrepentant about this, like then the plot could have been tweaked a little in a way that would have made it like less easy for her to have just had an easy way out. Uh, and not even have to address this issue to these guys. Like maybe she, she should have been like in some way, like caught dead to rights. And so you'd have the same story, but the plot would support it a little bit better. Okay. I, but I just, I could see her doing it and I wasn't surprised at all in the way she handled it. And, uh, you know, like I say, I just thought she was consistent that that, that behavior to me was consistent with her character throughout the whole thing. True to herself. All right. So yeah, and then uh we got we got uh we got execution. Um she is going to yeah. be executed as as Matahari was. Uh I didn't do I didn't I haven't done all my reading into Matahari. Do you know anything about Matahari? That, that, no. No. Me neither. Just I just kind of know that she's like ultra famous and probably one of the most famous spies of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Um but uh Matahari was also executed uh again by by her own her own side not not the enemy and think about and, and the other thing i was thinking about not even james bond but if james bond did this had this weak moment by letting the spy go M would have just you know wrapped his wrist a little bit and let him go <laughs> you know what i mean oh my god you're right good point yeah get back out in the field james or take yeah. take a couple you days know? take a couple days off and get your yeah. head straight well, he would have yeah, he would have bitched at him like he did about, you know, bitched about every little thing James Bond did. But he still would have, you know, said, go ahead, go on, get on your way. Sure. You know, as he gives Money Penny a kiss on the way out, you know. Well, so. I think I think also, like, you know, I mean, we've talked about this movie as being such a, a huge a discrepancy, a huge anomaly uh, in, in pre bond spy movies. I mean, it's already, it's already doing so much groundbreaking stuff, but I do feel like at the end of the day, like this script always would have ended in her death. Like there, there's, I don't think there's any way audiences would have been like, this always would have had to have been a tragedy because of the times and her mm-hmm. gender. Yeah. 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 Even, even though her, even though her tremendous acting transcended all that yep yep so um so yeah uh the the execution scene um it's 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 decent it's got some cool moments i love the fact like there's oh my god like some of the off some of the young officers here like there's this one guy that tries to speak up for her you know and and call bullshit on this to me that was the film that was i'd like to i think i said in here that uh i'd like to know more about that guy to me that was the film saying this whole bloody yeah imperialistic war is bullshit right um and to me that was the film's way of saying that with through the, the the device of that soldier i think it's an entirely different film if the execution had just been a bunch of grim-faced people that all 
like felt the same way, but it's clear there's, there's conflict there. And they, yeah. they even have like, she, he's crying. The, the, the young officer is like tearing up. She uses her own yeah. blindfold to wipe away his tears. That's a really, that's really a, that's, powerful image. That's biblical. That's freaking biblical. Yeah. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Completely, yeah. completely different movie. If you don't have that uh, at the end. Right. Um, she also, uh, yeah, you know, her final requests is uh, uh, she just wants to uh, die in her own clothes and not in an Austrian military uniform, uh, which which I think goes again to your uh, comments about like this this film's uh, uh, you know a- anti-war subversion of the the glory of war that's that's bubbling under the surface, and and she just wants a piano that's in tune. Uh, yeah, I love play. how she says, any dress I wore, any dress I wore when I served my countryman, and I put in parentheses as a prostitute, <laughs> prostitute instead of my country as a spy, and a piano that's in tune. Um, and then her death walk, to me, her final act of authenticity and dignity is evident in her death walk, where she declines a blindfold, blesses herself, fixes her lipstick and stockings, and faces it with a smile. Um. But again, I, for one, would like to know more about that soldier who protests the firing squad <laughs> in the war itself, calling it murder. It seemed like to me that was the film's closing statement on not only her fate, but war itself and that particular war that was run by a bunch of imperialistic bandits using their own soldiers as cannon fodder to do so. And there have been countless movies. Uh, Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas is probably the most famous Um about sending soldiers to their death, uh, generals just trying to outdo uh, the other with cannon fodder. fodder. Um, All Quiet, they've done a remake of All Quiet on the Western Front, and that's all about that. You follow some Germans. Uh, it's brand new on Netflix. Gary Busey uh, and there was uh, a, uh, or Nick Nolte and Thin Red Line, brother. Okay, that was, yeah, that was in the Pacific, but this is World War One. Um <laughs> And I was made in the 20s. It's a famous book. Then there was, I think, a TV movie with Ernest Borgnine and John Boy of All Quiet on the Western Front. And, um, yeah, it was uh, senseless. That trench, horrible trench warfare, the gassing. Um, yeah. But Paths, Paths of Glory is one of the – Kubrick directed it, Stanley Kubrick, uh, with Kirk Douglas. And um, it's considered – when you look at anti-war movies – one of the greatest. There's a new uh, All Quiet on the Western Front TV series, I think, that's out there. Yeah, I just said, yeah, that's what I was just talking about. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's from the, it's following a bunch of German, young gung-ho Germans. Are you watching it? Is as it they good? go through it. I've, I'm going to see it. I've put it off because I know it's going to be ultra-violent, but I feel I owe it to my grandfather to see it. Because oh, yeah, he did yeah. the running in the trench warfare, yeah. Uh, and that would be uh, uh, let's see. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, let's see. I mean, I I don't know that much about World War One. What's what side was he fighting on? What can what 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 flag? German. Okay, German. Let this kid. No, yeah, no, they, your grandfather. They follow no, your grandfather. I'm oh, about. no, he was a. We got in the war eventually of the Americans, the, the US. boys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. 
Agents please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. Fred, I really liked this movie. I, uh, I It had been on my list for like more. It's been on my list for maybe two years. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it. Just as far as my personal, like, you know, one to five stars, how much do I like the movie? I'm giving it a four. Uh, whereas I think that, uh, I'm, I'm, it, it really could have been a five. Marlene Dietrich is a fucking five, hundred percent. Uh, can't, she can't, she can't be less than a five. I don't think she knows how to be less than a five. If you get her the right coat, you find her the proper co-star. If you had gotten Gary Cooper in here, man, would have been, would have been, yep. So 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 much better. Um, that's really all. That's really all I have to say. Uh, uh, as far as uh, how much I liked it, I yeah. If if it was okay, if you if you match, if you found a a, a male co-star that could match her energy, then all the blocks would suddenly line up, and then all of a sudden, I would think this is like just one of the best movies ever made. I liked it too. I felt that the movie was a well-told tale of a flawed woman who was true to herself and for the most part true to her country as her efforts at espionage undoubtedly saved countless lives of her countrymen when the intelligence she gathered led to the crushing of the Russian offensive. Her weak moment to me said more about her humanity than any sinister quality that her treasonous sentence implied. And on so many levels, because let's put this in perspective. You keep talking about her sexiness and how she's one of the sexiest actresses you've ever seen. Now put that in perspective, yeah. right? No gratuitous sex, no nudity. Um, yeah. Pre um, pre uh, Hayes rule, right? She's not and even rocking her, cle- cleavage or short skirts or. Right. High heels or anything like that. Like the sexiest she gets in the movie is like in full on like leather jacket. <laughs> and to boot, and let's throw this in here. Here's the ultimate irony that they did all this. And see, this is what, you know how a lot of prudish people say, oh, you know, they could have shown that more without, you know, being so gratuitous. And you know how they always say Hitchcock showed more without ever putting the knife in the body. Right. Mm-hmm. Um this is a great example of how they could show, of you know, a, the power of sex. The whole think about this: the whole main tradecraft of this movie and why she was recruited was for sex, right? Yeah, for sex, for yeah. seducing these men, mm-hmm. for uncovering their espionage, right? And they do it without showing any sex. To me, that is creative and genius in and of itself. And the sexiness, like you said, she exudes without being exploitive. So on so many levels, this movie is good. Awesome. What, can you can you put a number on that goodness between uh, one, one to five? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say four and a half. All right. And then uh, on to... Our best and worst tradecraft leading up to an ultimate park bench rating for the film. Uh, I'm going to lead this time. I'm going to I'm going to lead with my worst. 
uh, num, num, okay. I did have a close runner up, which was just like the very super fast, like recruitment. And, and we get to see none of her training, almost none of her briefing, like so much of the spy stuff we would normally see in a spy movie. It's just, it's just not there. It just scoots ahead, like really fast in a way that, you know, just if I'm looking at, if I'm judging tradecraft, I gotta, I gotta, I almost feel like I gotta ding it for that. But it doesn't make my top three because I got three worse ones. Uh, number three is the way that uh, Cranow just basically tells her everything about, you know, just says, yeah, I'm a spy. I'm a spy for the Russians and I do this and I fly over that. He explains his entire job to her for no reasons. He gets, like he accomplishes nothing <laughs> from this. Well, could part of that be him falling in love? You know how he got all bent out of shape when he she accused him of being a clown. That's all it if took. He, so I say, okay, but would that would he have felt the same way if he wasn't falling in love with her? I, that's the only thing I'm throwing out there. Maybe part of that was him falling in love with her, um, that he showed so much, that he talked too much. And was really hurt by the clown insult. That's just an idea. Sure. Does it make sense for the character? We could argue that. Is it good tradecraft? Okay. No. And and especially no, if, no. if all it takes is me calling you a clown for you okay. to like divulge. But remember, <laughs> but remember, she's bringing something into the spy world that is unfair. <laughs> right, 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 right. As they all say, right. She's not fighting fair. Uh, if you if you if you were going to quibble with me about that one, you're going to quibble with me a lot about my number two. My number no, two. I, yeah, that's just my, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm having fun. It's just an idea, right? My number my number two is her sacrificing herself for for dude. Uh, it's. Again, like story versus plot, but I'm talking pure tradecraft. Like that's, but see, that's a yeah, but that's that's a casting problem. You question the fact that guy was a poor actor, and all I'm saying is it's not so much if that it was the story. It's not actually not so much that because I now we've definitely established that's my huge problem with the film overall. But here in the tradecraft sense, I'm just saying like she could have so easily said like, dude, he took my gun. He overpowered, he overpowered me. He jumped through the window. I don't know. You know, like it just would have been so easy. Uh, And then, but that pales in comparison to what I hope is also going to be your number one. I hope you're going to join with me when uh, Hindal, the way that he just instantly folds on like the flimsiest of evidence that, uh, you know, that he might be, colluding with the enemy and just says yeah. like okay fuck it i'll just fucking shoot myself uh number yeah, yeah. Um, he was he was a he was a wuss <laughs> what's what yeah. do you got for worst all right uh number three yeah colonel von hindel gives up the ghost too easily when x27 blows his cover by fighting the message in the cigarette number two <laughs> I know you went on and on about Invisible Ink, okay. but I just think it sounded silly when he kept the Austrian secret of police. He said it once on the phone and then once in another context. And the worst was putting a coded message in a cigarette for an agent that doesn't smoke. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. 
was on my list. <coughs> that was actually also God. on my list <coughs> as well. Yeah, if he doesn't smoke, then then you can maybe pick a different method of sharing your secret messages with each other. Yeah, that one's funny. Yeah. Um. All right. Over to best, and this is a film again, and I'm trying. I think I think it's it's tempting to try to grade it on a curve, but let's try not to. Let's try to hold the feet to the fire uh, and put it just right up against the same way we would like something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Hard to find great tradecraft in a movie like this, but uh, number three, I like the way she forged her pass uh, out of HQ uh, after drugging Cranow. Um, that's that's good. Um, number two, and this might, might've been me just reading too much into it, but when she goes to the first party where her target is Hindau, she doesn't go right to Hindau and start rubbing up on him, but starts flirting with another guy at the party. And then Hindau mm -hmm. notices that. And yeah, so that, you know, that, that whole yeah. honey trap is like more subtly played. Uh, I like that number one. With again, with a bullet, that piano code, really clever. Everything, yeah, everything about the way it was done and the way it, uh, you know, she had to get him to play it back to her so that she could memorize it and then she had to play it in order to actually transcribe it back. So fucking good. What are your best? Yep, I only added extra ones because I know how much you love it when I add extra ones. <laughs> so, uh, Fred's best tradecraft, number five. Cronow cuts the phone line and removes cartridges from her gun. Mm -hmm. Number four, she asks to interrogate Cronow in order to aid and abet his escape, dropping the Luger. Mm -hmm. Number three, she drugs her opponent and escapes back to Austria. My number two is your number one. X-27 obtains the secret plans for the Russian offensive and copies them in the form of sheet music which she commits to memory when heard played and reconstructs it when she gets back to Austria, which helps them crush the Russian offensive. Now, my number one is the whole plot. The chief of the Austrian secret police who hatches the plot of using X-27 to use her female proudness to seduce and ultimately identify male spies and gather military intelligence. So the whole plot I call tradecraft number one. All right. Where they get the whole idea of using her. Sure, sure. Uh, park park bench rating, uh, I think, has got to be fair, fairly low. Uh, uh, if if we're not grading on a curve, I looked at some some previous movies. Uh, we're we're not in point five territory at all. Uh, you know, shit like Spy Kids or Man Called Flintstone. This movie surprised me by actually having like, <laughs> yes, maybe. you said a man called Flintstone with a straight face. <laughs> we did it, man. <laughs> I know. I wouldn't brag about it though. <laughs> anyway, go on. Sorry. Hey, man. When I when I, when I launched this podcast, that that was my mission. I said we're gonna do. We're going to do everything. We're going to do everything. A man called, man called Flintstone. All right. 
That's, that's, that's right. It was the first. It was the first Flintstones movie. Uh, it it came out in 1966. This is also. It's a testament to just how profound the spy craze of the 60s was. Everyone, everyone was looking at all the money that MGM was making hey. with with James Bond and saying like how how can we get into this how can hey, we Hey, I was a little boy. I grew up with it all. I I was a big fan of Maxwell Smart and Napoleon Solo and right? Yeah. Well, here this is a, so, yeah. that's a great segue to me making my case for this being a one park bench. This is one out of 5. Um my big argument to you is uh, now, of course, it was David and I that that gave the television series "The Man from Uncle" a one point five on our park bench scale. I think this is a li- I think this is just that one little bit less than "Man from Uncle." Your your thoughts? What kind of number do you think you could? Could you tell this? me? Could sure. you tell me why? I, okay, let's go 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 into what park bench should is looking for for me uh the the amount of and the accuracy of the tradecraft like how real how realistic is this we're look you're looking at movies like uh uh tinker tailor soldier spy is is like a 4.5 it's way up there uh we gave pine gap a four some of our threes are stuff like uh let's see What's an example of a three right down the middle? Uh, sneakers. Do you, do you remember that movie? Yeah. Right. yeah. Or what What? What we did, um, Official Secrets. Official Secrets. That was pretty good. Was yes. Oh, yeah. I Official didn't... Secrets, obviously, a much higher rating than, than, than Dishonored should get. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool with a one. All right. I'll go 1.5. All right. Uh, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let you have, have the win on that one. Give it a (laughs) 1.5. It was, it was surprised. I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised that this was actually a spy movie and not just a romance with, with tiny little bits of spy stuff in it. You know, like, I actually I wanted to do I even started working on the notes of of doing Casablanca uh because Casablanca I mean technically it is a spy story uh but the more I got into it the more and started like trying to like analyze the tradecraft I was like no this is a fucking romance that just like has some you know is got a little spy stuff trappings. going on in the background yeah has the trappings of spy right yeah yeah, yeah, but yeah. this this movie was actually a spy movie. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, I had to. I don't know. Maybe I'll do Casablanca someday, but I just got halfway through doing the notes on it, and I kind of gave up. I said, eh, "Nah, not really." So um, I was thinking, no, we uh, we don't have to, but I was thinking it'll be your choice uh, for next film. Do you have any thoughts or TV series? Nope. I got an idea for you. I, I got an idea for yeah, you. That's fine. Uh, yeah. Which is um, because uh, I just watched. Uh, let's see. Uh, I just watched another Guy Ritchie film, um, The Gentleman. 
just watched The Gentleman, and I was reminded of, oh, of yeah. how much I like. That was uh, pretty good. Guy Ritchie. And and, I, right. You know, that's good. You know, another good Guy Ritchie film is The Man from Uncle. That's what I thought I might suggest to you. I think uh, that would be a fun one for right. us to do next. The Man from yeah, Uncle. Yeah, and that's what's, in, what's interesting is it's a prequel. Yeah. Uncle yeah. isn't a thing. Yeah. And Uncle isn't a thing till the very, very end. I haven't seen it yet, yeah. but but now after watching The Gentleman, I was like, you know, I really, really want to watch the Man from Uncle yeah. movie. So I'm going to be Napoleon Solo, Napoleon Solo was Henry Cavell. Mm-hmm. Who's our current And Superman? Ilya Kuryakin. Yeah, Ilya Kuryakin is uh, Army Hammond. Who, I actually don't know who that is, except from uh, tabloid bullshit about like how he's been canceled yeah. or something. Um, yeah. I don't think supposedly ever... for can- cannibalism. Oh my god, really? He was in. I think he was in. Yeah, I think he was in the the Lone Ranger with Johnny Depp. Yeah, I don't think I've seen Hammer in any movies. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's definitely think about doing the Man from Uncle uh, movie. It'll be the, our first movie of twenty twenty four. Fred, you know what you got to do here to take us out, right? Oh, I forgot. You got to remind me. You got to ask Mora to uh, invoke Protocol Nine, so we can burn burn this and pretend it never happened. All right, Mora, invoke Protocol. What? Nine? <laughs> Number nine? Yeah. Invoke invoke Protocol Nine. In Mora, invoke Protocol Nine, please. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.